Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Uh, this week, because I am away again, because this is conference season, we are recording this a little bit early. So if some incredibly important and impactful thing happens between Thursday night and Sunday morning when you hear this, assume we would have covered it and perhaps in your mind play it out like a pantomime. Hi Michael, how have you been? I've been very well, Gary. Thank you very much. Enjoying the lovely weather. So, indeed, it is conference season. We will be away, but we will, we we won't. We will be well interrupted in the next little while, won't we? We the week after that also. But anyway, we're here now. Michael, despite his uh, refusing to ever travel and always making me go and travel has finally changed his mind and decided there's a trip coming up that he absolutely has to be on, because next week the conference is in Ischia, an island off the coast of Naples. I've got to congratulate you, Michael, on overcoming your immense distaste for travel to force yourself to attend that particular conference, and to stay those extra days, just so you can really get the work on the ground done. I'm sitting here trying to say whether I will engage in what is the rankest form of character assassination. Even from you, Mr. Kavanagh, that is low. This, listeners, this is how this went. We're going to this thing initially. There are lots of people we have to talk to. There's some really important stuff we have to do. You speak Italian. Will you please, 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 please come out and do this? I'm going, you know I don't like to fly. You know I don't like uh, Please don't. We're going to have to do this, and then we're going to do this thing on Saturday, and we're doing this thing on Sunday, and you, we need you to come out and do it. Please, 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 please come out. Now, because I have agreed to do it, I am being assassinated. My character is being savagely taken. And if I had a penny piece in my pocket, I would sue you for defamation, Gary Kavanagh. You, so you're saying I twisted your arm? My arm, my shoulder is dislocated. That's weird, because I remember there being a brief moment where you thought you might not be able to go due to a pre-existing appointment, and it kind of sounded like you were about to start crying. <laughs> I want- That's just your dedication, you know, I assume, to, to the work, Michael, was it? The word I want to use to describe you is not a word that we can use even, <laughs> even on a podcast. Uh, it is considered to be too grossly offensive, but... You know what the word is. The <laughs> listeners know what the word is. And in my mind, that's what I'm now calling you. But anyway, what's been happening in the world outside of us? There's an opinion poll, a very interesting opinion poll, if only, and not only, sorry, because it shows Fine Gael at the lowest level that has ever been seen in this family of opinion poll. We have some comments from Helen McEntee and Senator Pauline O'Reilly that are doing, as the kids would say, Michael, numbers. Yes. Uh, we put videos of them up there, both in relation to hate speech. Wanted to go through those. Also maybe touch on Senator Barry Ward, who also had a... Um, he was dealing with the hate speech bill and it was um, not good. Not very good at all. It was like listening to Demosthenes or Pericles speak to the people of Athens. It was uh, a piece of parliamentary rhetoric and oratory and legal forensic analysis that left you in awe. Well, awe and a... Um, should we say, questioning if if Senator Ward had actually read the bill or glanced at the bill or been in the same building as a copy of the bill that someone had printed out and then left in a photocopier? Yes, pretty well. This is because, and all of these things happened because the hate speech bill was, or sorry, hate crimes bill, was being debated in the Shannon this week. Uh, ben Scallon uh, caught up to Helen McEntee. 
out in uh, at a press conference and was able to ask her a couple of questions about it. Um, so this is all kind of tied together, but I think we'll just start with the Helen McEntee thing. In the Shannon, McEntee had said that those speaking against the bill were fringe commentators. Yes. And there was sort of an insinuation that these, you know, these were disreputable sorts, far right, all of that sort of stuff with it. And so Ben asked the very, you know, very fair question, Michael, which was, we went through the public consultation on this and 73% of people are against it. Are you saying that 73% of the population are fringe extremists? Right. A question that uh, Helen didn't seem to enjoy getting. And to be fair to Ben, she tried to she tried to not answer the, the question and he kept at her and she got a little bit testy, asked was he going to give her time to finish and Ben made the very good point that, well, she wasn't answering the question, so there is no such thing as finishing. <laughs> but when it was pointed out to her that based on that and based on the only public poll I'm aware of which looked at this, which was a Claire Byrne poll carried out by Amoric in 2017, that showed the vast majority of people are against hate crime legislation. So Ben said, well, it looks like, you know, if anything, the, the government are taking the fringe position. And Helen said something which I think was perhaps not well thought out. Yeah. She said that Ben was factually wrong. And in fact, there was vast popular support for the bill. She then immediately tried to say that you could see this when the bill was being debated in the Shannon, to which Penn simply pointed out, yes, but those are politicians, not people. <laughs> well, as my Uncle Bill used to say, dogs are people too. So I chased this up with McEntee's office. Uh, the Department of Justice has gotten back to me. And Michael, I can now reveal to you the studies that McEntee was basing her statement, which again, she said that, Ben was factually wrong. And we yes. have to take that seriously, Michael. Yeah. Gripped. Oh, yeah. You know, we're not perfect. No. We can make mistakes. And occasionally the journal is there to tell us when we do. So they sent me over two studies, Michael. They, um, Firstly, they said that our claim was based on a fundamentally incorrect reading and interpretation of the legislation. Because, Michael, as numerous ministers have made clear, the legislation will not criminalise offensive, offensive speech. And there are defences and safeguard to protect freedoms of speech built into the legislation and so on and so on. Now, the there is a section of the bill which says it is to protect freedom of speech. It's two lines long. It is not what you would call uh, vigorous and full-voiced. It is, in fact, I think, absolutely uh, pointless. So here's the two stories, the two studies they have, Michael. One is a study published by the National LGBT Federation in 2022, which they say indicated that 90% of the public agreed the hate crime needs to be effectively addressed by Irish law. There's two points I will make here. One is the question and one is a methodological issue because I went and actually looked at it. The question they asked, Michael, was not, do you think there should be hate crime laws? The question they asked is, should the government ensure that incitement to hatred and hate crimes against LGBTI plus people are adequately addressed in our laws? That is a particular type of question in polling that is asked to get a particular type of answer because it contains within it this, the phrase adequate. Yes. Any person thinks things should be dealt with adequately. The question is, what do people mean when they say or hear adequate. So if you ask people, do you think the law should be at the appropriate level? It's not shocking that 90% of people will agree with you mm -hmm. because everyone thinks it should be at the appropriate level. But putting that aside, Michael, 
Here's the real problem with the survey. They sent it to 80,000 people. Do you know how many people, or would you like to guess? I don't know why I would ask, did you know? Because I can't imagine you go around reading NFX uh, surveys. Would you like to guess how many people actually filled out this survey? And you are the the man to go to on these questions. So I, I, I speak here as, as a, a, a mere amateur. I would make the observation, first of all, whatever the response was, and the response will be in, in interesting, the fact that this is a, a, this is a survey which has been sent out by, an, a, shall we say, an advocacy group or a lobby group or a special interest group to a set of people. This is not, therefore, I would imagine, a survey which is in any sense designed to be reflective of the population. It's been sent out to a mailing list. It hasn't been sent out to reflect the sex breakdown, the demographic breakdown, the geographic breakdown, uh, economic breakdown, etc. of the population. And therefore, to find a resultant sample of whatever it would be, so 12 to 1500 people, that would give you a representative sample which might give you a decent indication, plus or minus 3% of what the people of the country were thinking. So so far, uh, is that more or less right? Well, I will, I, I, I will, I will give them this. They didn't use their own mailing list. They used an external company that had what they say was a GDPR compliant email database of approximately eighty thousand people resident in the Republic of Ireland. Now they don't say if that's representative of the population, although that doesn't really matter because that even if it is, it doesn't mean that your answers are representative because it. You know, you're going to get different response patterns. Yeah, you're different. Your response. I mean, you'd have to expect that. They'd have to. You'd expect that if it's going to be interesting. Or have to be. I don't know. Eighty thousand. If you had a, so, if you had a ten percent response rate, which would not be a great response rate, you ha- you'd have eight thousand responses. Yeah, yeah. They didn't have that. So well, a five fi- well a five percent response rate would be four thousand. Yeah, they had less than one percent. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that statistically that's problematic. Well, statistically that's unrepresentative. No, unrepresentative, really? I Shocking. The study itself says, it doesn't say it's not representative, it says it may not be representative. It may not be. Which okay. is, I'm going to apologise to people who've heard me go through this on the show before, but I'm going to do it again. The problem with surveys and you see this even with incredibly highly educated academics, is the thinking the bigger numbers are better. Or you don't send a survey to a thousand people who've been carefully selected to be representative. You send it to 80,000 people. Here's the problem. The more people you send it to and the fewer people respond, the more opportunity there is for bias. Because if you pick a small group of people, There might be certain people who are more interested in the topic than others, and they are more likely to go for it. Like activists in your sample are more likely to fill out topics than people who are not activists. And when you start sending the survey to tens of thousands of people, the lower your response rate goes, the higher the risk that that bias is there. And the real problem is there's no real way to quantify the bias Because if you measure by demographics like age, sex, things like that, that may not detect that the people are different, not because of those demographics, but due to their interest in the subject. And response rate, therefore, can 
basically kill most things. I'd say it is the number one fundamental issue in most pieces of Irish research I've seen. And we are very, Irish academics tend to be very loose with it. A sample, a, a response rate of 75% can be an issue. Ideally, you want kind of 90%. Now, that's hard to do, but sub 1%, why are you even fucking writing this down? Okay, okay, listen. We, we, we can say, okay, this is, a, this is a steam pile of shite and we can ignore it. But they had, another, they had another study. So tell us about the other study. What were the details? What was the sample size? What were the results? Well, here's the thing, Michael. They tell me that this second study is based on a representative sample that was carried out by an independent polling company. And that, that study, which again is representative and carried out by people who know their methodology and overseen by a team of academics showed that two-thirds, or sorry, more than two-thirds of those asked are in favour of hate crime legislation, regardless of the model employed. And they say this highlights the strong support in Ireland for effectively criminalising these offences. And so this is the study that they're saying that McEntee is basing her claim that Ben was wrong on. That all sounds great. Irrespective of the model. Yes. Now that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? I... I I am surprised, Gary, that the Irish people would say, "We think this is so. This is a th- this is a bad thing, and we want you to." Lay- and we don't really care what the law will be, or how it will be framed or organised. Whatever you think yourself, whatever you do, we'll be happy with because we want this done. That seems a little bit like giving a loaded gun to a toddler kind of approach, and I would be. I'm frankly, I'm I'm a little bit disappointed. I'm not saying I'm surprised, but a little disappointed that the Irish people are so. Oh, so free and easy with given this kind of that kind of latitude uh, to the minister and to the to the, to the the politicians. But there you go. So it was a, this was a good study. Well, they they say it's a very good study. I mean, representative, all those things I listed, Michael. It sounds great, and that you know could be enough for the minister to be able to say, Ben, you're absolutely wrong. The public want this law. Mm-hmm. There is, however, one slight problem. What is? Yes, unfortunately, the research has not been published yet. Oh. So, the department assures me that it is of, Michael, world-class quality, absolutely unimpeachable, you know, supporting everything the minister says. I just, they just can't let me look at it. Well, not yet. Not yet. Now, they assure me, later, of course, everyone will be able to look at it. Yeah, yeah. Just not now. Mm-hmm. And why? Because it hasn't been published, Michael. Um, how hard is a thing like this to publish? I why is okay? Why hasn't it been published? Oh well, because you know the team of academics are working on it, presumably to get it into a um, shape to be published, and the Irish Research Council is involved as well. And um, yeah, it's just you know it's it's just we haven't hit the point in the schedule where the public get to look at it. Just a question. Say the Irish Times or any of the, or the Independent, whatever, commission an opinion poll, right? And it takes place over three days, sometime in whenever, in June. How long does it usually get them, how long before they publish the findings of the poll, would you say? Uh, a couple of days, week maybe. So... Depends on the nature of the poll and, and how much is there, but you want it up rapidly because these things change. Well, yeah, there's not much value to his newspaper if you say, well, we did a poll two months ago, which said that Fianna Fáil was at 27%. It's not really news, is it? 
you tend to do a poll over three days and then you publish it, you do it like midweek and then you publish it on the Monday or you, you have it, you do it midweek and then you, you put it in the Sundays. So if they can do it and this is their their business, you know, and, and to be right and to be accurate, what, what, I'm struggling to see, Gary, why it's taking this time. What, what? Well, I mean, Michael, you know, this isn't just a poll. This is research based around that poll. The okay. poll was apparently carried out in January of this year. Uh-huh. So, of course, uh-huh. yes. you know, the research is still being conducted uh, by members of the European Centre for the Study of Hate at the University of Limerick. Now, I have, Michael, emailed every academic involved in this to basically say, the minister is using your research to back up a claim. Uh, can I see it? Okay. But... Michael, I don't want to suggest that the minister, for instance, while under pressure and not being a terribly good public speaker, fumbled her answer and then said something that when they got back to the office and got the follow on email asking for evidence, you know, that they had to go, oh, bollocks, uh, what have we actually got? I fully trust that the minister's office has the Aurora Borealis occurring inside it at this particular moment, at this particular time of year, and I don't need to see it to know it's there. Was that too was that too sarcastic? No, 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 no. In this particular story, I don't know how what too sarcastic it sounded like. There there's a virtue uh cultivated within Stoicism called uh, apatheia, which I think you could translate like as detachment, you know? And I have been trying for the sake of my health physical and mental, to sort of develop a little bit of apatheia, you know, to say to myself, you know what, you've said what you had to say, you've done what you've done, you've tried to, you know, it's gone through anyway, there's no point in getting excited about these things, you know, I'm going to die, and it'll be up to the people who come after me, they'll have to live with this stuff, I won't. But Gary, truthfully, when I watched that interview and I saw, I mean, the fact that they were all asking questions, most pretty well, they all seemed to be interested in was the minister's pregnancy and her, her her leave. And then the question is asked, right? Now, on the face of it, in that moment, it very much felt like the minister had slightly panicked and had produced a statement. The vast majority of the people of Ireland support this, which on the basis of what we seem to know from both the consultations and opinion polling that has been done in the past, was a surprising thing to be able to say. What I found annoying, really annoying was at that moment all of the all those journalists in front of her who should be terribly interested not in her maternity leave but rather in the fact that uh, uh, something restricting speech is going through the doll at at that at that moment Uh, going to the Shannon sorry going to the Oireachtas shall we say as journalists this should be of a real serious concern to them at that moment that should have been the moment, the, the the flag for the feeding frenzy to start, for the hands to be going up, for the questions to be sh- to go one after the other, like the machine gun fire, the kind of thing you you might see when one of those press briefings in the White House uh, press room starts to go horribly wrong, and it becomes the kind of television that you just can't stop watching. Nobody seemed to be, nobody was interested, nobody seemed to care, and I. God knows how many times we've had to say this, Gary, that so much, so often the story is the story, but then the meta story is even more interesting. A, a democracy doesn't work without a media that's willing to interrogate the people in power. Where I would disagree with you, Michael, is I actually wouldn't be surprised if the majority of the public supports you know, at least sections 
of what these people are trying to do. So I, I wouldn't be surprised. I just don't think they have anything that shows that. I have long ago ceased to have any expectations about what the Irish public will or will not put up with. No, that wasn't my point. My point was, on the basis of what we know at the moment, what is in the public record or in the public uh, arena regarding the data referring to this, and on the basis of that moment of a minister who looked like she was a bit shaken and a bit nerved and a bit, oh God, I have to say something here, it felt very much like she'd made a mistake. No, it's not to say that she's wrong, but she said something which demanded the follow-up. What is your basis for saying that, Minister? What what evidence do you have for that? What data have you got? What research do you have? There should have been a plethora of journalists trying to pin her to the wall. She'd made a statement for which she had not, which she, at that moment she did not produce any backup, state, any backup for, and which sounded at that moment like a very, very dubious kind of thing to say considering what we we knew before. That's not to say she won't be able to produce a piece of, a piece of work that they've brought out of UL, which will back it up in a month's time or whatever. But the, 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 the reticence of the press to jump on her was disturbing. One of the things I found quite amusing, actually, is that the press conference was quite well attended. Multiple, multiple stories went up in pretty much every major newspaper about it. All of them that I saw were about... Uh, her maternity leave and whether or not other people thought it was good for the Minister of Justice to take maternity leave. But what I also noticed is that over the course of the day, some of the social media blurbs and the headlines that were being shown on social media moved towards the hate speech. The same articles, because they had usually mentioned something about it, but I think there was a bit of a recognition of this actually looks kind of bad, particularly because... For those who, we were saying that the hate speech bill was being talked about in the Shannon, it was pretty fractious. And there was a lot of things said in the Shannon about this bill that meant that when she came forward the next day to talk about it, it should have been a topic of interest. And they just generally didn't give a shit. Yeah. I think, Michael, that might be the, the moment to go on to some of what was said in the Shannon particularly what was said by Senator Pauline O'Reilly. Mm-hmm. Now, I thought this was interesting. We put up a video there on Gripped of it. The video of McEntee struggling to answer has, I think, about 1.2 million views. But the video of Senator Pauline O'Reilly has about a million, which I'm quite chuffed by because uh, on our morning call, I, I was like, just clip it and throw it up and see how it does. But what it is, is, is uh, Senator Pauline O'Reilly, who is a Green Party senator, talks about how this bill is designed to restrict freedom in the interest of the common good. Yes. And she talks about this at a bit of length. And I thought people might be interested in it because on a philosophical level, Michael, what she is saying is not only true, but fairly uncomplicated. Laws restrict freedom. It's one of the reasons I always thought during um, during the abortion referendum... When people were saying that we had to get rid of these the, the restrictions on abortion because they restricted what women could do with their bodies and that no such law would be allowed for male bodies, I always thought it was kind of a ridiculous point because laws restrict what people can do and they control what you can do with your body, with your time, with your work. That is just how laws work. Yeah. And then behind that, of course, is the threat of violence from the state. So I thought it was fairly uncontroversial. And seem to um, seem to not like a senator saying openly that you know, the bill is designed to restrict people's freedom. Yeah, I 
I, I wouldn't want to push her too far. But I mean, she makes pretty obvious points. I remember, oh God, a very, very long time ago, starting to talk to people. You know the famous essay that the uh, German philosopher from, I think the, he was part of the Frankfurt School, Herbert Marcuse wrote a very famous essay on repressive tolerance. When he talked about the notion of free speech and tolerance, and he, his point was that in reality, liberals, shall we say classical liberals, weeks, whatever you want to say, talk about the values of freedom and the, ta- the values and the importance of free speech. But what in fact this really is, is a way of them protecting their privilege and protecting the power of using this bourgeois notion of freedom to protect the entrenched power of the privileged classes. And he said we shouldn't have we shouldn't actually tolerate free speech. We should only tolerate free speech, which was speech which came from the proletariat, from the alienated, and from the repressed. But speech from we should not tolerate the notion of free speech to be a guarantee of free speech for people, for the bourgeois, for the reaction, the forces of reaction, the oppressors. Now, I don't know if the senator is somebody who has deeply studied the philosophy of the Frankfurt School or indeed Pete Gadamer or Habermas or Marcuse. However, this is, it seems to me, the philosophical core of this very notion that actually what we're talking about is differentiated forms of freedom. That here we are, we're going to sacrifice somebody's certain people's freedom in order to it's not i don't even think it's really about protecting a group you know the protected classes it's more about it's more about attacking those people that we first of all attacking people we don't like really this is about going after people we don't like who are saying things that we don't like and saying things that we disagree with and it's also a way for people like the senator who are people of privilege and people of power who are deeply, in fact, bourgeois, to be able to display their fundamental virtue in this. I hate that, you know, this phrase virtue, so signaling, I've said before, I, I don't like it. It's a bit like cultural Marxism. It's this phrase which has entered the blood, the sort of the, the bloodstream of right-wing conversations and it just gets thrown out all the time. But that's what, I mean, this is a wonderful example, literally, of somebody standing up and waving flags of virtue and saying, look how good I am. Because the implication being, I am willing to sacrifice some of my bourgeois privilege in order to be an ally. An allyship, as you know, Gary, is a very important thing these days. To the repressed, to the oppressed, to the marginalised, to the alienated, to the othered, to the people on the fringes. But it's all bullshit. Ultimately, all of this does, as it has it on in every other manifestation of this line of thought, is it, 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 it devolves into a form of totalitarianism. And that's it can't do anything else because what it is, is a transfer of power, a transfer from the individual, something the individual previously was allowed to do and is now that, the, the, what that individual previously do will now be monitored or policed by the state. And that seems to me as simple as, you, as a simpler way of describing the evolution of a totalitarian power as you can possibly get to. There, um, there are a couple of actually standout performances, I think, in the debate about the hate speech. I'll include the uh, link to the actual debate so people can read it if they want. It's well worth reading, uh, particularly Michael McDowell's commentary, uh, Barry Ward's, because it's horrendous. So bad, in fact, that I reached out to his office and invited him on for an interview. Sir, Gary, I, I would ask you to put up at least a clip of Senator Ward's and just to just a comment in passing, just a, a brief one. I think at one stage he... 
he makes a, he makes a, a statement if I'm if I remember correctly, basically saying, and the idea that it's going to restrict thought is nonsense. It's all nonsense. It's only if you when you go out onto the street and you act, but act by act he means you speak to your neighbours and to the people on the street. Then you will be covered by this. But but first, that shows to me, Gary. Am I wrong in saying that the senator is in fact a lawyer? Uh, Barry Ward has has significant legal training. It's like he didn't read the bill. Uh, this is particularly interesting because of his legal history. Um, so obviously there is a prohibition of incitement to hatred act from 1989. Yeah. One of the sections in that bill says basically that these things won't be offences if they happen in a private residence. Yeah. The new bill does not have that. No. So not only is the senator wrong in what he's saying, because as we've talked about previously... With a warrant, Gary can come into your house, seize your computer, your phone, anything of that nature, and then work on the assumption that if you had anything problematic on any of your, in your house or on your computer, on your phone, that it was for the intent of sharing to others and therefore crime, and you have to convince them that it wasn't. Yes. And I think that has up to five years in prison. But so not only that, but this bill has stripped out the protection of the private residence clauses of the uh, prohibition of incitement to hatred act of 1989 so he's not just you know wrong he is wrong at some sort of fractal level it is it was like man shouts at clouds kind of thing and barry ward is not a stupid guy like he's not the sort of senator who stands up and you sort of go well here we go let's just get through this he is actually relatively smart so this was totally unexplainable and like, I know putting on the team jersey is a thing, but like rein it in, lad. Um, actually, there was another mention to the, um, to the act from the minister. So she, they were talking about why they wouldn't uh, define hatred because people have a problem that we're putting in these things and we're not defining what hatred is and that's a problem. And she says... Well, one of the reasons we're not going to do this is it's been an established term on the statute books for several decades, decades, as it carries over from the definition in the 1989 Act. Now, long-term listeners or regular listeners of the show will know what the definition in the 1989 Act is, Michael, but can you remember it yourself? I can, Gary, insofar as one can remember something which doesn't exist. I mean, it technically exists. The definition in the 1989 Act of Hatred, which is so comprehensive and well understood that Helen McEntee is saying we cannot put in a definition now because, you know, we've already got one. This is the exact definition as put in the bill. Hatred is hatred. Sorry, Michael, I, I was I was I was wrong, actually. Hatred means hatred, not hatred is hatred means hatred. A very, very long time ago. To the extent that I was educated or people attempted to educate me, I did my degree was in a thing called philosophy. And we did logic and things like that. You're going to start saying things like circular definitions are by definition invalid. Well, you know I am, Gary. I'm sorry. I'm going to go down that very old-fashioned uh, bourgeois route. Um, and for anybody who had any bit of interest in philosophy, there were philosophers, English philosophers, like the likes of A.J. Ayer, and Bertram Russell. And Bertram Russell was very definitely a, a, a man of the left. And I suspect A.J. Ayer was too. However, 
I am fairly confident that if you said to them, as great linguistic philosophers, here you go, and Russell, of course, was a great mathematician, also a great logician. He said to them, this is a definition. Now, would you describe this as an a priori definition, or would you describe it as a synthetic proposition? What, what would you? He would laugh at you. He would literally laugh at you. Because the notion that you can define something with itself is so bloody stupid. I also have, I mean, how, how did that, how was that framed in law? Really? That's the kind of thing. If there was a private club of parliaments that met for drinks and peanuts at the end of the month, that's the kind of thing that would be handed around as a meme amongst other parliaments. And people would be in the corner pissing themselves. Did you see what they did in Ireland? Have you seen? Do we, does the clerk of the doll not get involved in these kinds of things? Are these, aren't there not people whose job it is to help them frame laws? That you, 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 you create a law. So the first thing you have to do if you're creating an offence is to define the offence. So if it's, if it's theft, it is the taking away of property without consent or something like that, right? A murder, an assault, all these things are, first of all, are defined by the actions involved. But maybe there's the problem. How do you, how, hatred is an emotion. It's not an action. So you're legislating, and I, I, I go back to what I've said before. My fundamental, I mean, maybe too fundamental and too abstract and too theoretical objection to this is what they're trying to do is to, is to create an offence based on having a feeling. And then also a crime on inciting people to have a feeling. I find that a bizarre notion in itself. But, th- but maybe there, therein lies the problem. You're asking them to define a feeling. But you know what? A dictionary does it. If you look up the Oxford English Dictionary, that will give you a definition of hatred. Why couldn't they just do that? The minister said that she had been advised that defining the word hatred further at this junction could risk prosecutions collapsing and victims being denied not justice. Huh. Which... Huh. Sorry. What? In other words, oh, yes. if, if you define it, that might mean that might mean that people might be found not guilty. So she's saying we have to frame a law in such a way that everybody is found guilty. Or um, I might just be too horrible and cruel here. That if they if they defined the offence, people might get away with it. Christ Almighty, Gary, where are we? Nineteen fifty six, Moscow. Really? I mean, come on. Yeah, she, uh, well, yeah, Mike, the, here's, here's a sentence she said as well, but I don't actually understand what this sentence means. It comes immediately after the point about defining it further could uh, risk prosecutions collapsing. Mm-hmm. And she says, you know, it's, it's an established term on the statute books for several decades. It carries over from the definition in the 1989 Act. She says this sentence, in order to use different words, we simply have to try to describe what those different words mean. And that makes absolutely no sense. Okay, again, please. In order to use different words, we simply have to try to describe what those different words mean. And that makes absolutely no sense. Well, I am. It's a tricky one, isn't it? I am in, a, in, in sympathy in that that makes absolutely no sense. To me, what does that mean? We have to define what? I don't know. I've I've read it repeatedly. I've no idea what you're trying to say. Do you not have a feeling that this was a line that somebody gave her in the department, either an advisor or a senior civil servant, 
having tried to explain to her the the bill three or four times and eventually said, listen, we're not going to, she's not getting it. Just tell her to say this. Michael, I will say that this is coming from the transcript, so it's possible that the minister simply had a stroke halfway through the sentence. Okay. So we've we've had the Green Party coming out and saying that this is a a restriction of liberty. We have Fine Gael coming out and saying that there's no need to define hatred. We had uh, Senator Joe O'Reilly come out and give as an example of the sort of thing that uh, should be illegal... Telling lewd jokes. What? Joe O'Reilly brought up jokes three times when he was talking because he said that um, he started talking about the Holocaust, which right off the bat, unless you were talking about genocide, Israel or World War Two, a politician starts talking about the Holocaust it tends to go off kilter pretty quickly. Yeah. So he was saying that homophobic attacks don't just happen. They begin with homophobic remarks, smutty jokes, and exclusions. And then he starts talking about what happened in Navin and says that those those people involved in that were conditioned by jokes and material online. He references Lord of the Flies. Sorry? Hold on. What? He references Lord of the Flies? Yes, he says that um, he's talking about Navin. Uh, for those who, there was a, a, a child was assaulted. People are claiming there's a hate crime element to it. The guards, therefore, are saying that there is, it's been investigated as having a hate crime element, but the guards use a perception-based test. So as soon as the media started saying it was hate crime-based, the guards were going to class it as such. So it basically means nothing. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. At this point, I would be amazed if the people involved could get a fair trial or if, and I would suspect the entire thing will be thrown out because people have lost the absolute run of themselves. But what he said was, um, that what happened in Navin was appalling, uh, but those children did not get up one morning and decide to do that. They were conditioned by jokes, material online and on television screens. Conditioning brought them to that dreadful position. It was a Lord of the Flies thing, something that was fed into that has to be considered. Now, it's been a while since I've read Lord of the Flies. God, Navin must have gone downhill since the last time I was there. I did think the last time I went through it that there were a lot more corpses hanging from parachutes and trees and pigs heads on sticks. Were there a lot of? Well, he's right. A lot of a lot of sort of scantily clad young boys with sharpened sticks going around hunting other children, because that hardly ever used to happen in Avon. Oh, I'll give you I'll give you a line from Joe O'Reilly that I know you'll love, Michael. As the minister stated, it is normal to reverse the burden of proof. It does not take away rights. <laughs> it's normal. It's normal to reverse the burden of proof and it doesn't take away rights. Well, Jesus, lads, we're through the we are through the looking glass here. We really are. This is It's it's not like Michael in common law legal theory, there's an immense amount of stuff written on the burden of proof and why, while it can make certain people very difficult to convict, it is a necessary safeguard because if you are a person and you, you are being tried by the state the entire might of the state is against an individual. And therefore, they need something to level that playing field. Well, you know, that old Magna Carta stuff, Gary, that was only English stuff anyway. That's not native to the Irish tradition. We should get rid of it. That is a, But, you know, this conditioning, Gary, just reflect on that for a moment. He's saying that 
these the chaps can go online and or see some YouTube videos or go to school, hear some jokes, and they're going to be conditioned by that. The same children could go to a school from the age of 14 to 18 and be taught by at least in a school which was at least officially Catholic, have catechism and RE every week, three times a week for 14 years. And after 14 years of an active attempt to inculcate in them the ideas and values of the Catholic religion could come out and vote 90% in, for a repeal. And indeed, be abs- 90% of them not see the inside of a church after their confirmation bar, the odd wedding or funeral. And yet, and yet, jokes, Gary, that they hear in school will condition them. That is fascinating. He has an understanding of the psychology. Jesus, he they sh- he has a, um, and I apologize for jumping around this, but for those who don't generally read a political debates, politicians often structure their debates in this incredibly fractured, relatively nonsensical fashion. So it's often quite difficult to actually try and give their remarks context. But here is Joe O'Reilly with another remark, Michael. It's right to refer to when someone is recklessly or intentionally engendering hatred. Someone could recklessly engender hatred in a way that was not clear. For example, someone could be reckless by making obscene remarks, telling lewd jokes, or encouraging young people to lewdness, homophobia, or racism. Now, I'm going to go out and make the point here that when this bill is being discussed, uh, either by government politicians or in the media, People have been very strongly, you know, putting forward the message that this is not designed to cover offensive things. But if lewd jokes or encouraging young people to lewdness is, you know, recklessly engendering hatred, uh, kind of hard to, to see how that could be true. And Joe O'Reilly is, of course, a government senator. If that is the case, Gary, uh, I'm afraid to say that... Uh... The drag show in the George on a Sunday will be closed down very lickety split because you will be shocked to discover that there are lewd jokes told. So I think, Michael, we, we've gone significantly over on this. So we must, must move on. The only the only thing I would say, uh, the only thing I would say here is Michael McDowell is very, Lisa Chambers actually was surprisingly good on this. But Michael McDowell makes the point that when this comes into force, not only can the guards detain you, but you can be detained by a citizen. And if you don't define the term hatred, well, that could lead to some very, very messy circumstances. Oh, yeah. We'll just go straight to, I think, the poll, Michael. What are the opinion polls showing us, Michael? Well, the opinion polls are mildly interesting, uh, I would say more than anything else. Uh, Fine Gael are down. Uh, Fianna Fáil are up. Uh, Sinn Féin also are down couple of things just a couple of just interesting pointers here um we are now at the moment where that you have Fianna Fáil are ahead in this poll now are ahead of Fine Gael but Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael combined are now comfortably ahead of Sinn Féin on this now listen we have said a million times every opinion poll is just a snapshot and we are along in my opinion and people the opinion, I think most TDs as well, at this stage anyway, 
we're 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 a fair bit out from a general election. Um, people are talking about the budget being a giveaway budget, you know, and it, I, I think it's unlikely to be because, and if for no other reason, I don't think it's going to be an election budget. I think they won't admit that. They would never say that. But I think the, the, the one of the reasons it's not going to be a big giveaway is because if they're going to have a big giveaway, it's going to be the next budget. And also because our friend Cormac Lucy has been saying for some time that against all of the figures, he, he keeps, he still has his five pounds each way on a recession coming this way. And actually, a lot of the lead indicators have turned concerning, shall we say, regarding whether or not we are going to actually go into recession. So they're going to keep their powder dry for that. However, it is true that Sinn Féin having gone steadily up and up and up and then fixing up in around that 36-37% point, not far away from really being solidly in government territory, they're back down in the low 30s now. So that is a, a, a problem for them. But you know, remember Gary, we were talking before, I'd be curious to know to the extent what was happening in the vote, you know, when they were go, they were going... When the votes were, were, were changing around, were they going up in one sector and going down maybe in another? Were they losing votes? Say, for example, because of issues around immigration or asylum seekers something or the housing crisis, that they were losing votes in maybe their more working class demographic, but going up. Well, it's, it's curious. The poll is broken down on economic, on the, with the economic demographics here, the ABC1 group and the C2DE group. The party, and this doesn't surprise us, the party that has, so we say, the most the equal representation across them is Fianna Fáil with 22% and 21% in both groups. But the party, if you exclude independents and others which are coalesced together, the party with the single largest reported support in the ABC1 group, the, which is the more, the more prosperous, economically well-off group, is in fact Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin scoring 25% in ABC1 voters as opposed to 19% for Fine Gael. Now, Sinn Féin also have 38% in C2DE voters. Second biggest block there being Fianna Fáil, which is curious. Other things, again, it's, you're not talking about big figures, so the, the figures may not be that interesting, at least statistically, I don't know. But People Before Profit scored 3% with ABC1 voters and 1% with C2DE voters. So people before profit are three times more popular with the middle classes than the working classes. Three times more popular. Social Democrats more than twice as popular with the more prosperous voters that they are with the less prosperous voters. Which I thought was interesting. I can't say I'm shocked. No, I don't think anybody is shocked except they will pretend to be shocked and disappointed. But then again... Since the 30s, the left in Europe has resigned itself to the fact that the working classes are no bloody good and they're, and they're not going to properly participate in the revolution to throw off the shackles of uh, capitalism so it's, it's left up to the middle classes to do it for them, which is why they need to be minded. I love the idea of people for profit trying to describe what they are because they describe themselves, Michael, as an eco-socialist party now. Yes. And that just strikes me as a sort of thing you can go to Trinity and talk to people about. I don't think on the streets of a working class area. Socialism, maybe, depending where you are. Eco-socialism, though, that's just got a certain sound to it. Yeah. It's like socialism, but without ever having to physically come within the reach of someone who's working class. However, Gary, speaking of eco-socialism, speaking of the Workers' Party, this is not to do, nothing to do with the poll, the Workers' Party have come out with a, a new document saying that Ireland has to go nuclear. It is the only option to produce a, what was it, guaranteed supply, low carbon, 
and low cost energy for the future. So the Workers' Party is not, we have, it was it, let's get real, was that the title? Anyway, that we need nuclear power and we need it now. We really are living in Alice in Wonderland, aren't we? When you got the lefty parties are coming out looking for nuclear power. And the, now I, and I use the word inside several inverted commas, the centre-right or conservative parties are lashing out hate laws and hate, hate speech laws. It's it's all it's all a wonderland, Gary, isn't it? What a time to be alive, Michael. What a time! What a time to be alive. Well, I suppose this 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 is actually the best time to be alive. I must say. Well, it depends. I mean, the Chinese might observe that it's an interesting time to be alive, but that's. I've I work on a very simple system, Michael, which is this: any time you are still able to say this is the best time to be alive, must by definition of you existing be the best time to be alive. Because if it wasn't. You wouldn't be saying anything or doing anything other than possibly slowly rotting. That feels like a version of the ontological argument somehow. Well, that's convinced a lot of people. Alter- or, or else it sounds a bit like the famous W.C. Fields joke when he was asked, or was it Groucho Marx? He was, he was not well, in, in fact, terminally not well. And, he's, and he was asked, well, how did he feel? And he said, well, you know, when, I cons- when you consider the alternative, and when you consider the alternative, I suppose, yeah, why not? Anything else to say about the poll, Gary? It is the first time Fine Gael has gone under 20% in an Ipsos poll. I mean, they're down to 18%, down 4 That is notable. Not really factually, but psychologically, because Fine Gael have been under 20% in other polls. Yeah. But it's very easy to say, well, look, those polls are, are biased or historically they've shown this. This is the first time in Ipsos. So you're starting to see it across the board. And that is the real problem. Individual, As Michael said, individual polls are, are relatively meaningless. But when you start seeing consistent trends or movements over time, that's a problem. Because that's probably representative. I just wonder if you went down to Mount Street and sat outside Finnegale headquarters and listened very carefully, would you hear the whine of machetes being sharpened? Does Leo go to bed at night like Metternich, terrified that he's going to wake up in the morning and discover that the Empire has fallen apart while he was asleep? Leo has had a, a couple of internal issues recently. Um, things that have just not played well with the Finnegale TDs themselves, even if they haven't really been noticed outside the party. So... That's going to give some concern. The advantage I think Leo has here is people inside the party remember what happened when Leo went for leadership. And he was facing an opponent who seemed to be relatively well organized and, you know, about to hit the ground running. And Leo just took him apart, just destroyed him. That tends to give people a bit of a, um, you know, oh, in the parliamentary party, inside the party itself, when you, the wider party, different story. But inside the parliamentary party, that's that's uh, much as it is. So I think, Michael, we will we will leave it there. We will. We will be back uh, next week. I think we have an interview lined up for next week because we're away. Um, we're away at on Ischia, so I think we have um, we will have an interview or we'll have something anyway. Don't worry, you won't have to be alone with your thoughts. It'll be fun, whatever it is. It'll be great fun. But until then, have a great week and a great weekend and enjoy your sunshine. Bye-bye. All the best.